Wow. <laughs> Y'all came ready. All right. Let's go straight to scripture. Um, we're going to be picking up where we left off, also revisiting a passage that we uh, touched on. We're going to be in Romans chapter 2, verse 25 to 29. It says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to gather in your presence, to be with your people, to incline our hearts to your word. We pray you'd give us an understanding heart. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you as Ephesians 1 prays. The Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to us. Help us to see him in a fresh and living way. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. If this is your first time with us or first time in a bit and maybe you haven't uh, listened in on, online, um, as Donald shared, we're in the middle of a sermon series studying the book of Romans. And... This letter to the church that was gathering in a city much like ours, uh, a cosmopolitan world power city, um, it's one of the densest books in the Bible. Um, it, you can just go through a few verses and it is meaty. It, you got to take your time with it. Um, but one of the gifts of studying the book of Romans is that by virtue of studying it, you actually end up getting a better understanding of the entirety of Scripture. Um, some people have called it the cliff notes of the Bible. Um, and so if you've been with us, you know that we have gone through quite a bit and we're just rounding chapter two. Um, and so, again, I encourage you to go and hear where we've been. Um, today, where we're picking up, God has something really powerful to say to us. If I'm going to set this the stage, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's going to be uncomfortable for us today. If you're not a Christian, you're going to feel really good for a few moments, and then it's going to get uncomfortable for you too. Um, why do I say that? Well, let me start by, I remember uh, the leap from high school to college. Uh, anybody remember that journey, um, that step? been thinking about it. My daughter just graduated eighth grade. She's going to high school next year. And so I was thinking about, man, those transition moments. And I remember uh, my first day of class at Brooklyn College, the poor man's Harvard. And so went there and it was a big lecture hall. And I go into the room and hundreds of people. And as everybody's filing in, um, the professor as you come in, he's telling everybody, grab the syllabus. And everybody's just methodically grabbing the syllabus. For those of us that has been a while since we've been in school, a syllabus contains the very important 
dates and articles and books you should get. It's what keeps you on course. So a good syllabus kind of does so much of the work. So anyway, I'm this anxious kid, just graduated high school, first day of college, and this is a big deal for my family. Um, single parent home, I'm going to college, you know, make something of yourself, that kind of moment, um, and sit down, and then all of a sudden, the first words out of the professor's mouth is, attendance is not required. And all of a sudden, hundreds of people, it was like National Geographic stampede, oh, what's going on? I mean, they're just, exiting the door because in this room we're both freshmen and like juniors and seniors the juniors and seniors like not my first rodeo i know what this means and they just left and i'm there just like shocked like wait what is this 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 never happened in high school attendance is not required it doesn't matter as i'm watching these people boldly leave the room i followed suit i was like all right i'm gonna boldly go where i've never been Strangely, when it comes to obedience, when it comes to obeying God, to obeying his word, there's kind of a sense, there's kind of an idea that floats that almost as if obedience isn't required, where holiness doesn't matter. And that's kind of where we're finding ourselves in this moment where Paul is, is in the middle of a form of argumentation that was very popular at this time. It shows up in many uh, ancient writings of this time. It's, it's almost as if the person is arguing with like uh, an imaginary person and, and they're trying to make their point by showing how the point comes to life in contrast of arguments. And, and so these are very much not just imagined arguments, but they're real arguments that show up and he's taking the time to flesh this out. And the first thing that Paul comes comes to us with, he says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Why is he talking about circumcision being of value if you obey the law? Because if you've been following what has happened up until this point, some people were beginning to argue and say, wait a second, if religious moral people, law-abiding Jews, don't have any advantage over Gentiles, non-religious, law-abiding people before God, if both are equally in need of salvation, then what's the value of obeying God? Why do we even have to? Why bother? Attendance doesn't seem to be required, so to speak. And so Paul is making this argument. He's kind of rebutting and combating against that logic. And he's saying, actually, circumcision indeed is of value. Now, circumcision was the sign, the outward sign that God gave to the Jewish people as a demonstration of them responding to his invitation to be in a covenant relationship with him. And so Paul is arguing back and saying, actually, let's be clear. God does have a right on our lives. I know that rubs against the grain to modern ears to think that God has a right to tell us anything, that anybody has a right to tell us anything. You're your own king, you're your own queen, you call your own shots, and yet you read the scriptures, the scriptures come against that lie very thoroughly. Actually, God assumes rights over us, assumes that he is king, and so for us to follow him, it requires an ongoing submission to his rule, to his reign, to his commands. And so 
Paul is saying circumcision is of value as an act of obedience, but the problem that is emerging is when obedience becomes the source of your confidence rather than the, rather than the expression of your gratitude. That's when trouble sets in. For these Jewish believers, their obedience had become the source of their confidence. It's like, I'm circumcised, I obey, therefore I have some advantage. I'm holier, I'm better. I don't need God as much because I'm obedient. And Paul is coming at the root of that and saying, actually, no. There is value in obedience, but there's no value in making obedience the source of your confidence. Saying, because I obey, God owes me something. Because I obey, I'm better. Because I obey, I'm less needy of salvation. So why is he making this statement? Because clarity was really needed at this time. And he wanted to make sure people knew what he was saying and what he wasn't saying. Because at this time, there's people that are wrestling with this faulty train of thought. They're saying if moral people and immoral people both equally are in need of salvation... And if morality doesn't give a person an advantage for salvation, then why try and be moral? And even though Paul is arguing, he has been arguing till this point and beyond, that obedience is important, he is cutting at the root saying obedience doesn't save you. It's important, but it doesn't save you. Why is he taking the time to do this? Because... If obedience is the source of your confidence before God, it's like building a house on a shifty foundation. It's unstable at best because we are inconsistently obedient. I know some of you are saying, Pastor Chris, direct that statement at somebody else because I'm rock solid. I'm always obedient. You don't, you don't recognize greatness was in front of you? <laughs> to the rest of us, obedience is unstable at best. Not just outward obedience, but inward obedience. How many things do we say yes to outwardly, yet inwardly we are grinding our teeth? How many things are we inwardly closed off cold, indifferent about, that we should be alert to, attentive, passionate about. We're inconsistent. Paul goes on to, to like point out the depth of the inconsistency. So he says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And so he's arguing and saying, if there's people who have not outwardly obeyed through circumcision yet inwardly you see them conforming to God's law, then doesn't it almost count as if they obeyed outwardly? And so he, he's really trying to level in. Again, I warned you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a moral person, it's going to be uncomfortable because Paul is attacking this false foundation that many of us rest on, that our confidence is our obedience. 
And he's trying to say, don't make that your confidence because there are people who don't obey outwardly like you, yet inwardly have a degree of beauty that reflects God in ways that you don't have. I know this is hard for us to admit, but I don't know about you, there have, there have been some people I've been around that don't follow Jesus. And this is the part, if you don't follow Jesus here, you're going to feel real good. You're like, man, I've got to come to this church more often. They put down Christians in my presence. This is great. And so it, it, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I've been around some people who don't follow Jesus. And the truth is, there's a degree of beauty in their life that sometimes I don't see in mine. I'll see an aspect of the way they care about certain things and prioritize that convicts me. And so Paul is trying to get to this point of saying, if people that don't obey like you can still have a degree of beauty and inner obedience, then bring down your confidence on your obedience because it's not the security blanket you think it is. Because we're not fully obedient it's an unstable foundation how many have ever experienced that frustration in a relationship where the best way to summarize it it could be a friendship it could be a romantic relationship it could be a relationship at work a supervisor a co-worker and the best way to describe it and says I don't know where we stand I just don't know. I, I didn't even ask for someone to raise a hand, and someone raised a hand. I was like, yes, you know, <laughs> this is real. It, 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 you resonate with it. Like, you don't know. And it's a frustrating experience. It's like, where do we stand? Are we hot? Are we cold? Are, is there interest? Is there not? Building on that unstable foundation can be so disorienting. Imagine. If you and I lived our lives basing it, our relationship with God, the confidence that we have with God is based on our obedience. You know what that would be like? That would be like the most wicked roller coaster you've ever been on. So it's like, how are you? I'm good. I'm praying. I'm seeking God. I'm fasting. I'm in community. Everything's fantastic. Man, you look good. You're great. And then you, next, like next hour, next day, maybe next minute. Man, I'm depressed. I'm so anxious. I got this email. I don't know what's happening. And then, uh, no, but I'm good now. I'm good. Yeah, it's Wednesday. Hump day. It's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this week out good. Then, oh, man, I just got this report from the doctor, and life is crashing in on me. And I don't know, I don't know, like, what tomorrow's going to hold, and I might get fired. And, but, oh, man, but I, did you hear that latest song? Oh, my gosh, goosebumps. It was amazing. I, oh, it's just like, it, it Imagine living your life based on your obedience being the confidence that you rest on. Paul is trying to chip away at this. Because as religious, moral people, that tends to be our default. We tend to think that if we obey, God owes us something. God, I've been good. So why this happened? We have a form of that show up in our lives. God, but I sought you. I prayed. I felt like you led me. And this is falling apart. Why? 
Man, I've been seeking God. I was living like holy as a single person, and, but I'm so lonely. This isn't working. Why? There's, there's the instability of making our obedience, our foundation, is really perilous. And so Paul is trying to address this and attack this head on. And he gives us an example. There are people who don't believe like you and yet obey better than you. So then why are you making your obedience, your confidence? That can't be the source of your security. And he's doing this like, like he's, he's threading a fine line because he's saying obedience matters, but it doesn't matter if you make it the source of your confidence. Obey God, but don't think your obedience is what makes you better or less needy of salvation, or better than someone who doesn't obey like you. And so again, I told you, if you're not a Christian, you're feeling real good right now. It's like, man, thank you. This is great. Um, like, finally, these Christians are hearing they're not better than us. How dare they judge? You know, like, I obey too. I'm a good person. I have, there, there's moral beauty in my life, and, 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 and you're, you're, you're feeling really great. But don't get carried away, because... Paul isn't denying the fact that there could be an element of beauty in your life that can even be lacking in the lives of people like me and us that are followers of Jesus. But he's also saying, even that doesn't save you either. He's not denying that you care for justice and you care for the world and you want equality and you want goodness in this world. He's not denying that you have a heart that's tender for the marginalized and that you're a good person and you have great character. He's not denying any of that, but he's saying to the religious person and to the non-religious person, your obedience doesn't save you. That's not your security. That's not our confidence. So if you're a non-Christian and you live a morally beautiful life, that's wonderful. But according to Romans 1 and 2, the bad news is that our self-reliance and our desire to excel apart from God, our morality won't save us. What is God trying to get through to us? He's trying to chip away at something. I remember hearing that when they asked Michelangelo how he made the David, if you're familiar with that piece of art, you have to realize what we see, it started out as a giant slab of marble. And it ends up being this incredible masterpiece. And his response was profound. I said, how did you create this? He said, I just kept removing anything that didn't look like David. Just kept chipping away until all that remained was what I saw. If you could imagine what God is trying to do, especially for us that are moral, trying to obey God, that tend to put our confidence in our obedience, he's trying to chip that away eliminate it in the hopes that you and I could emerge and say, 
My confidence is not in my obedience. My confidence is in his obedience on my behalf. And God won't stop chipping away until that's what remains. And so if you feel like life's been shaking you up and things have been coming at you, what if God is chipping away and saying, I'm not going to stop until the confidence you have rests on me and not on you. God is doing this profound surgery on our hearts to set us up so that we could be fully prepared and ready to receive what he actually offers. The worst thing, one of the worst things, is when you offer somebody something that they need but they don't realize they need it. Especially if you love them. Have you ever been in that awkward situation where someone says, Hey, I want you to meet my so-and-so. We've been dating. I want to hear what you have. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And, and, and you hang out with them, and the whole time you're like, this is not it. <laughs> this is not the one. And, and then and it's just like, then afterwards, the hangout's like, so what do you think? Man, they blink real good. You saw that? You know, like you're searching for something to compliment, and you're like, I want to be real. I want to be honest, but I don't see it. it it's the... Offer, and, but the, why you struggle there? Because you know they're not ready to hear what they need to hear. By the time we keep going further in Romans, and by the time God unveils the majesty of his salvation, he wants to make sure we're ready to say, yes, that's what I need and for you and I, the thing that prepares us to be ready is that by the time God offers his salvation, we come to a place and say, my obedience is not my confidence. I can't obey myself into God's favor. But what if he obeyed on my behalf? He's trying to get us to that place. And this is where Paul alludes to something that's actually spoken of in, in the Old Testament, it's not a New Testament idea. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so when Paul references the circumcision of heart that's now possible only through Christ, it's hearkening back to Deuteronomy and other passages where God from the beginning was always trying to communicate to his people that he is after inward transformation. He's never just been after external conformity and external obedience that's disconnected from an inner transformation. He's always been after renewing and making our hearts alive and, and made new and, and taking our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. And it's all for the very humbling truth that we need to process this and it needs to sink in. 
He circumcises our hearts so that we may love him. Do you realize that according to scripture, you and I can't even love God without him helping us to love him? So if you walk around with any degree of pride or I walk around with any degree of pride and say, I love God. God's like, yeah, I know. I circumcised your heart to make that possible. You didn't do this on your own. You can't do this on your own. We, can't, we couldn't even love God without him helping us to love him. You'll hear sometimes in religious circles like, oh, I found God. You didn't find God. You weren't looking for him. I wasn't looking for him. We were actively forgetting him. Romans 1, denying his reality, pushing him out of the way, acting as if he wasn't true and real. He found us. He rescued us. He pursued us. And what's powerful about this language of the circumcision of the heart is that similar to physical circumcision, you can't perform this on yourself. It has to be done to you. It's not something that you can force on your own. But if God changes our hearts, if he removes the hardness, the stone, and places a heart of flesh, something that only he can do, that you can't force yourself into it. Only he can do that. What happens over time is that from that new heart comes fresh obedience. It flows out of you. It's not forced. And if we get the, the, the idea that Paul is addressing, that your obedience can't be the source of your confidence, now, if obedience is forced or if obedience flows out of a new heart, and if we're clear, I can't, I can't base my confidence on my obedience wherever it comes from, then we could experience the depth of change that only God could bring. I have a friend of mine, he pastors a church in the, in the hood of Baltimore. Um, Baltimore has some really nice places that people go and visit tourists. And they have some places that you don't want to go to. Um, and those that live there don't want to live there either because it's really rough, really difficult. So he pastors in a church in an area that's oh, so difficult, yet he's seen God transform people's lives. I love to hear what God's done. They have like renewed block after block. They've bought old houses, uh, re renovated them, given them to, to families. Amazing stuff. Anyway, he tells me about this church service they're having. And, and it was a full choir, full band. The music was out of control, amazing. And then it kind of shifted from like loud praise music to kind of softer worship. However, in the back, there were some guys that seemed to not get the cues of the music. But everyone else was kind of mellowing in and they were like grunting and like these like howls and yells and like, what's going on? They were, they were locked together arm in arm and like going around in circles and like they're like screaming at each other. And it's like, oh, this isn't worship. This is something else. And so they rush to it and they find that one of the guys was actually a deacon at the church. He's been a leader there for a long time. 
And so like, whoa, what's, they, then they find out that the other guy was a brand new visitor. And when they locked eyes, they remembered that over 10 years ago, they pulled guns out on each other and almost killed each other because they were in rival gangs. The guy that was in the church, God had transformed his life. The new guy that visited, he had just become a Christian. And when they saw each other and they locked arms, what was happening is they were realizing the streets told me I should kill you, but Jesus' new heart in me says I should do other. And they were having a hard time articulating it. So literally they're like, ah, and they're just doing this circle as they're realizing like, wait, I should kill you. But no, my heart feels different. And I, I love you, but this doesn't make sense. I was supposed to kill you. You were supposed to kill me. And after a few whirls around and these grunts, they went to just pure tears and joy as they recognized Jesus had transformed their hearts. But what was interesting about that story is that though they had new hearts, they still had the memory of how the old heart functioned. For some of us, we doubt if Jesus has given us a new heart because the old heart memory still, it, it comes up. Has that ever happened to you? Where all of a sudden something happens is like, oh, the old me has just showed up. Yet, the beauty of what Jesus alone could do is that though you may have moments where your old self emerges and your old self struggles, what's distinct about what he does in your life and mine is that he gives us the capacity to obey him, to be like him, that no one else can give, that you can't give yourself. So what's different now is that, yes, you could still disobey. But what's different now is that now you can finally obey from the heart. Not just outward conformity. The circumcision of the heart that Jesus does is powerful. It's profound. And even though there's times where the old heart, the memory of it, the reflex of it can still pop up. When he has given you a new heart the obedience that flows from that new heart will emerge. It may take time, it takes intentional discipleship, but it will emerge. And how does he give us this new heart? He gives us this circumcised heart as we consider by faith what he has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. When the beauty of that sacrificial act of love penetrates and digs deeper inside of us, exposes our idols, cleanses our hearts, and we put full faith and confidence in that, we'll find ourselves with a new heart that only he could have put inside of us. And you'll notice that new heart in moments like the one I described when the old ways are just as much an option but you surrender and yield to what has been made possible because of Jesus' transformative work in us. We love now when our tendency was to hate. We speak good when our tendency was to gossip. We bring people together when our tendency was to sow discord. We humble ourselves when our tendency was to be proud. And we do this not with any boastful confidence in ourselves, 
we do this knowing he has done this work. It's because he gave us a new heart. I'll close with this. One of the most beautiful phrases for me in this text is the last, last words here. It says, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. His praise is not from man, but from God. One of the gifts of receiving this new heart that Jesus provides is that it frees us from the bondage of living for the praise of people. This is honestly some of the best news that Jesus declares to the world that we live in now because we live in a clout-chasing, like-hungry, influence-grabbing world that's curating false versions of ourself just to get attention. And it is binding. It's suffocating. We live for the praise of people, not for the praise of God. And what's scary about living for the praise of people is that if you live for the praise of people, their praise will inflate you and their criticism will deflate you. If you live for the praise of people, you're constantly wondering, where do I stand? Do you like me? Can you affirm me? And then if there's a tension in that, you can't sleep, you can't eat, you don't know what to do, you, you can't live without that being resolved. All it takes is one unclear email. And now you're like, I don't know where things stand. Maybe, maybe things aren't good. Or, or, or a text that isn't responded to. I don't know. Maybe it's over. I thought there was something there. It, it, the anxiety that overwhelms when we live for the praise of people is suffocating. And I see this happening all the time. Can I tell you one thing that, that really hit me recently with my own kids? We've had these moments where my kids have like, there have been beautiful moments where they express unbelievable gratitude, like, oh, wow. Like, thank you. You guys are good parents. And it's hard to keep it together in those moments. Because <laughs> I just wanted to like, oh, my gosh, really? Yeah. We are trying, you know? And especially because there's these long gaps of silence. Like, you know how many meals we provided for you? And, like, safety and love. And, and this is all we get? You know how dangerous it is to live for the praise of your children? It's soul crushing if you don't get it. And it's also scary if you chase it. Like, I want you to like me. So therefore, come home whenever you want. I see that happening. That's one of the, one of the things we're working out with our kids is like, I know your friends' parents do it this way, but we are not them. And I know why some of that happens. It's because parents want their kids to like them. If you're not confident in God's love for you, you will be a prisoner to the likes of others. It's not just those relationships. It's marital relationships. 
if you live for the praise of your spouse, what happens when you don't get it? I've seen men all the time chase praise from other places because that's what they were living for. One of the beautiful things that is possible only through Jesus is that when you and I become so clear about his love for us, we find ourselves being able to exist without any dysfunction, without any stress or detriment to us, even if people don't like us. I don't know about you, that sounds like the Bahamas right now. Like, what? That's possible? That oasis? Bring me there. Like, our world needs that, that respite, because we're so bound to live for the praise of people. And we can't live with their criticism. But what if it was possible for you to live from a different center that says, I'm okay if people don't like me. And even if they like me, it doesn't get to my head because ultimately I live for the praise of one. And here's what Jesus tells us. His praise, you already have it. You don't earn this praise. You're not working for it. It's been given to you freely by grace. He obeyed on our behalf. If you want God to love you, you have it. Now. Say, oh, but I'm struggling. He's not going to love you more when you overcome this than he loves you right now. You have it. In Jesus, we have the praise of God. An unearned, undeserved praise. And when you have that, then and only then can we be free to live in this world that tries to make us prisoners to the affirmation that it tries to give and withhold. Jesus wants to meet us in this profound way. As I invite us to stand and the worship team to come forward, I want to invite us to a time of prayer, of repentance, of worship, of confession. As we come forward to pray, uh, to, to worship, the prayer team is going to be in the back to my right, to your left. And so at any given moment during this time, if you would like prayer for any of the words that were shared earlier, anything you need prayer for, anything you're going through, we would love to pray with you. All you'd have to do is slip out of your seat and go to the back and receive prayer during these moments. And so, as the worship team prepares to lead us, could I invite us to just pause for a moment and consider how God's word is coming to us this morning. Are you someone who places your confidence in your obedience? Is your relationship with God hinging on your obedience? Or is it dependent on Jesus' obedience on your behalf? Do you walk around thinking you're better than people because you're more, more moral than them? Maybe this is a moment to confess that, to come clean with God, ask him to humble your heart. 
Maybe you live for the praise of people. You can't live if you feel displeasure. You want their affirmation and you'll chase it. You'll be bound to it. Wherever you land that God is speaking to you, this is a moment for us to come and encounter him. Could I invite us, if you feel comfortable, could we just raise our hands in the presence of God once again? And let's really lean into his presence in these next few moments. The Lord is here. He wants to meet you. He wants to do a work in your heart. He wants you to see the sufficiency of what he's done for you and me on the cross. And he wants to do a work in us. Let's turn to him. Let's worship him now.